When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Amy Salloway. And sometimes you open a utility closet and there is a man standing there with his penis in his hand. But then I just thought, whatever, that could happen in any workplace. (laughs) That and more... But before that, I just want to remind you that Risk is supported in part by ZipRecruiter. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post up to 100-plus job sites with one single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. And as you might remember, Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site at risk-show.com. Chris went on to create a super popular online class called One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials to teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a simple photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person there to help you out. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their own dream app and taking their career to the next level. What are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Herring. Behind me now, we're calling today's episode Brain Matter. These are three stories of people dealing with mysterious goings-on up in their skulls, or dealing with the neurological mishaps of friends, because the old noggin... It's the most mysterious organ of them all. And who doesn't love organs? Or sphincters? (laughs) All right, I got a little off topic there. But in a little bit, we're going to hear from my friend Winter Tashlin, who is a kink educator, a photographer, and a wonderful storyteller to boot. But before that, 
going to feature something from yours truly, a story that I told at the top of our recent Chicago show. The rest of that evening can be heard on the previous episode. Here I am at Lincoln Hall in Chicago with a story we call Altered States. Always loved altered states. Have you ever heard a brain scientist will talk about this thing called waking trance? You know, sometimes it might happen to you when you're watching a movie, sometimes it might happen to you when you're driving in the middle of the night. When I was little, I could stare at the spinning label of an LP on a turntable for hours and hours on end. The adults would always marvel, he just goes into la-la land, you know? And I wasn't really even seeing the label spinning around. I was up there in the treetops with the people singing up, up, and away. My siblings started calling me Space Cadet when I was still quite young. I remember one day, I was so entranced in my own little drama going on in my head, just talking to myself, talking to myself, talking to myself. I walked right off a six foot high concrete patio ledge and landed with my face in my neighbor's grass lawn and was shocked. I was like, oh my God, I just did the wily e. Coyote thing. But then I realized, oh, no one saw me, so I guess I can just go back to talking to myself, talking to myself, talking. And soon enough, I'm completely entranced again, completely mesmerized and dazed by my own daydreams. And I've sauntered down to the garage that my family had, and I step on a rusty nail coming out of a board, right? Now, (laughs) a more reality-based child would have stopped and screamed and got some help. But no, I was still so, I guess, unconscious that I just went right into flight mode and started running up the driveway with the board nailed to my foot, pounding this corroded spike deeper and deeper into the center of my foot. That's how much of a space cadet I am. Now, by the sixth grade, I was saying to myself, Kevin, snap out of it, okay? It's okay to daydream, but you should try to make real stuff out of all this imaginative stuff, right? You should try to make things out of all this make-believe. So, I thought, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to plant my foot on the ground and start organizing. I decided to create Kevin Allison's Drama Club. I started inviting various kids from the sixth grade, and the whole plan was that we were going to do skits and songs and stuff like that at nursing homes. And we were all going to meet at someone else's house after school once a week, right? I also came up with what, what, what I thought was just a hilarious name. I thought it was so kooky and funny. I thought we should call ourselves the Gym Shoes. Now, Angela Winarski was kind of like the Velma 
of the group, you know? She said, the gym shoes would be a more appropriate name for a group that does things in gyms. But Danny Cluse, he always had my back, and he was like, she's just nuts. So the gym shoes it was. But being a doer rather than a dreamer is a little bit harder than you might expect. Every week I would tell everyone, okay, gang, bring your skits and songs and let's start rehearsing them, and I'll bring my skits and songs and start directing them. And every week we would do no such thing whatsoever. We would get together and be like, yeah, yeah, let's rehearse something. Oh, has anyone ever played with a Ouija board? They're so cool. Or, oh my gosh, I know Mr. Rorcassi, our social studies teacher's home number. Let's call him and act like we're fish. <laughs> I remember one day, the only thing we did, there was a brand new hit song on the radio, and Carolyn Schwarzkopf had a 45 of it, right? So we listened over and over and over again to Funky Town. <laughs> but one night, I made a discovery. There was a movie musical on TV called On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. And it was so boring. But there was one thing I learned from it that totally fascinated me. You see, in the movie, Barbara Streisand plays a woman uh, who has a chain-smoking habit, and she wants to break it, so she goes to a hypnotherapist who helps her to get out of this. Now, I didn't know that hypnotism was a real thing, right? And I didn't know that adults paid professionals to have this done to them. And I didn't know that you could show exactly how it's done on TV. So here I am sitting here watching this movie and there's this long scene where this handsome man is kind of rubbing Barbara's temples and telling her, relax and count back from 100. And she's counting and she starts losing track. Her voice fades away and eventually, She's so blissed out. She's just tranced out of this world. And I thought, oh, that looks so cool. I want to learn how to do that. So I ran and I got a pad and paper and I wrote down exactly all that man had done. Now the next day was gym shoes day, right? <laughs> we were all meeting at Carolyn Schwartzkopf's house. And Carolyn was getting really pissed off that we weren't doing any rehearsing of skits and songs. She was a real no-bullshit kind of gal, you know? For one thing, Carolyn was that person in the sixth grade who was twice as big as everyone else in the sixth grade. You know, there's always that kid who's like so much more developed and tall and everything. So she had to take a lot of shit, right? And she was, you know, she was kind of had the steel to deal with it after all of that. So this day, we're gathered in Carolyn's uh, basement, and I say to everyone, hey, everyone, I've got a great idea of something we could do. Last night, I saw a movie on TV called On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, and it was a musical. And Caroline said, oh, great. So should we rehearse one of the songs from it? And I said, no. It is so boring. 
I learned how to do something from the movie, and today I could hypnotize one of us. Everyone was silent until Angela said, um, hypnotism is not a real thing. And Danny Cluse said, yeah, it is. And adults pay professionals to have them do it to them. And I said, yeah, and you can see how it's done on TV. Well, no one wanted to do it. And I was like, guys, this is why it's so hard to be a leader amongst you. I come up with something that's so cool and none of you has the guts to try it. And Angela said, well, isn't that the sort of thing you should probably be trained how to do first? And Danny's like, shut up, Angela. <laughs> then finally, Carolyn said, I'll do it. And we were so excited. And it was so appropriate because, you know, Carolyn was the tough one, right? She was, you know, have you ever seen those um, BDSM porn movies from the 60s? She looked a lot like Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. So she sits down in a chair and I start to slowly rub her temples. And I tell her, you're relaxing. Every muscle in your body is just becoming less and less filled with tension. And she seemed to ease right into it. It was going so well. And then eventually I'm telling her, yeah, that's right, that's right. Just keep focusing on the feel of my fingers on your temples. And you know what? Let's start counting backwards from 100. And she started counting. And by about 80 or so, her voice had just faded completely away. And I picked up her left hand, and it was weird. It was kind of wobbly and weighty. And I dropped it, landed on her left leg. I said, see that, guys? Dead weight. Everyone was like, holy shit. <laughs> I leaned in and I said, am I speaking to Carolyn? She said, yes. And Angela said, that question is more appropriate for exorcism. <laughs> but we went on. I created this little world for Carolyn, right? I took her into this serene and safe and secure place. And she helped me. She would add details. So she was on this warm beach at sunset and feeling the ripples of the warm water through her toes. And it was all just so lovely. And we spent a little while there. And I don't remember all that happened exactly, but eventually I was like, all right, all right, let's bring her back up. So I said, all right, when I count to three, you are going to feel so refreshed, so alert, so conscious again, and completely happy about everything we did here. One, two, three. And her eyes kind of fluttered back open and she kind of arched her back a little and shook her head and she smiled at us and we were all like, how was it? And she was like, it was so cool. We were all jumping up and down. She was like, I really went somewhere else. Everyone was like, whoa, what can Kevin do? <laughs> Then Carolyn finally said, hold on a second. 
she was feeling her leg, her left leg, and she said, I can't feel my leg. And we all was like, huh, what? She started hitting her leg, and she said, I can't feel my leg. And Danny says, oh, come on, Carolyn, what, are you bluffing us right now? I mean, just walk it off. So. Danny and I, we grabbed both of her arms and helped her out of the chair, and she went crashing to the floor like a falling tree. She started screaming and shrieking on the floor. The tears were real. The panic in her voice was real. And we're all freaking out. We're all saying like, oh my God, we should probably call an ambulance. Holy shit. Um, wait, wait, we should stay calm. We're, we're only making things worse right now. And we were all wondering if she was just acting, but she kept saying, no, 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 I can't move my leg. Finally, someone said, let's move her leg for her. We bent down, we started moving her leg. That freaked her the fuck out. She couldn't feel it. She just started screaming. And we all thought, oh my God, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. But none of us had ever been exposed to anything like this before. I had just seen it on a movie the night before. <laughs> so I said, wait a minute. I've got an idea. I'll take you back into trance. She said, so I can lose my other leg? And I said, no, so I can bring this one back. <laughs> like, what the hell else was I going to do? <laughs> so... She kind of gritted her teeth, and I knelt down beside her, and I started doing the thing to her temples again. I have to admit, it was a lot more urgent this time. <laughs> a lot less relaxing. <laughs> but eventually, we had slowed down her breathing enough, and some of the normal pallor was returning to her face. And I got her to relax again, and I started to talk about all the life and the blood and the nerves and the energy returning to that leg. And then I said, you know, when I would bring you back up, totally refreshed and relaxed and edit, et cetera, et cetera, on the count of three. One, two, three. Her eyes opened a lot quicker this time. She didn't say anything. She just kind of felt her leg, bent it a little bit, sniffled, and just nodded that it was back and it was okay. <laughs> Carolyn insisted that she had not been acting at all at that point. And we all agreed if she had been, that would have been a first for acting in a drama club meeting. <laughs> but I told everyone that day, listen, I will never do hypnosis again. But, <laughs> I started a normal therapy well not normal therapy I, it had to be therapy for the kind of people who you know have people piss on them and all that kind of thing you can go to a, a site called kink aware professionals and make sure that your therapist is going to be okay if you're a complete perv so I found one of those and in the first several weeks we were talking a lot about the fact that you know i would love to be able to maybe be doing a little less of the drugs and the alcohol <laughs> just curbing it a little bit moderating some things maybe cutting some things out completely and i said to my therapist the whole problem i have with it 
is that I love altered states. And he said, well, Kevin, you know, there is one completely natural way to achieve an altered state that's been around forever. You can do it to yourself. You can do it to other people. And you might even be able to use it to train your mind to maybe not want so much drugs and alcohol. Kevin, if I have one piece of advice I insist you do, it's start doing hypnosis. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is the story of the worst day of my life. In 1996, I was a camper at a upstate New York summer camp for Jewish teenagers. I was also a flamboyant gay kid with severe Tourette syndrome. Tourette is really bizarre. At its heart, Tourette syndrome is a neurological condition that causes involuntary movements and sounds. I experience Tourette every waking moment of every day. At the moment, probably the most audible thing anyone would be aware of is this stupid accent of mine. I was raised in central Massachusetts and haven't actually spent any time out to the United States, but every two years for about 14 months I sound like this and then I'll sound like an American boy who was raised in Worcester, Massachusetts for a little while and then I'll go back to sounding like this. Most people with Tourette can suppress some or all of their symptoms for some period of time. For me, today I can go hours without a vocal tick, although for some reason I can't suppress the stupid accent. When I was just about 13, I had an eye blink and uh, I went to the ophthalmologist. And then the eye blink became paired with a quick sniff. So I blinked my eyes and <sniffs> real quick. Very shortly after that, I was blinking my eyes, sniffing and jerking my head to the left all at once. And at this point, we had clearly passed beyond the realm of what could be considered an allergy. One night when I was in the shower, I made a sound. It was sort of a weird popping sound, sort of a I was doing that repeatedly while jerking my head to the left and blinking my eyes. And my mother came in and said, uh, are you doing that on purpose? And I said, no. And then she burst into tears. The popping sound is actually quite difficult to make, and it turned relatively quickly into a bark, which sounded like the terrier I had growing up. I still bark today, although now I sound more like the Shiba Inu that I have today. 
And from there, barking was joined by significant physical ticks. I snapped my arm out to the right. I jerked my head violently. I ended up with, for a period of time, these sort of full body ticks that were reminiscent almost of grand mal seizures and spent a lot of time in and out of the hospital. Back then, the idea was that you were supposed to just medicate until the ticks stopped. I weighed over 300 pounds because I was on massive dose of medication that just didn't do shit. I had six months where I screamed obscenities about poultry. Fuck a chicken and that sort of thing. The thing people most remember was I had a tick about flying penis man where I would shout, look in the sky, it's flying penis man. Because my brain is very strange apparently. My doctor thought it was fucking hysterical. Obviously this was a bit of a a rough ride for my whole family at this point, which on the plus side made coming out as gay totally a non-issue. Compared to having a son who's screaming about fucking poultry and barking like a dog, the fact that he'd really like to be sucking cock isn't actually that big a deal. My family decided early on that you sort of had a choice, you could laugh or cry, and we made a real effort as a family to err on the side of laughing whenever we could. When my tics were really bad, there were days when I could go a little while without barking, without yelling obscenity. I've never been very good at suppressing physical symptoms. It sucks to do. It's a lot like trying to keep from sneezing. By the time I got to summer camp, conforming and fitting in was no longer so much on the table. The Reformed Jewish community had always been incredibly good to me. There are a lot of issues I have with my milk religion I could go into and I'm not going to, but acceptance sure as fuck wasn't one of them. There aren't that many environments where a 300-pound barking, flaming faggot could fit in. But I did there. I, I managed. At this point, camp is a pretty special place. My public high school was utterly uninterested in dealing with the threat. So I went to a very small therapeutic day school about two hours from my house, well, two hours in traffic. So, I mean, I'm 16 years old. This is sort of the one place in the world where I can just sort of be. Because this was a Jewish teenager summer camp in New York, there was a trip to New York City. I really wanted to go because you would pick what you wanted to do and you'd go to some New York landmark of some sort and do touristy shit and then you'd go to a Broadway show in the evening and one of the shows on offer was Les Mis which I cannot state clearly enough I was fucking obsessed with I really wanted to see Les Mis even though it was going to be in shitty seats and all that I really wanted to go and I want I didn't want to be left at camp while everyone went off and did something fun, because our camp was really about trying not to feel like a freak. So the trip I end up choosing is to go to the Empire State Building. A group of us get into an elevator, so it's probably four or five, six campers and a counselor of some sort, who at the time seemed like a grown-up to me, but in retrospect was probably like 18. I am in this enclosed space trying not to do the thing that my brain naturally wants to do. All that I have going in my head at this point is 
don't bark, don't bark, don't bark, don't bark, don't bark. And then I bark. <coughs> Next thing I know, something hard hits the back of my head. And I freeze up, I try to figure out what the fuck just happened. And I look and my fellow campers just have this horrified look on their face. They're all just staring, wide-eyed, at their jaws open, like, oh my god, did that just happen? And I realise they're not staring at me. They're staring at one of the tourists who's in the elevator with us. A little middle-aged man. I don't recall him that clearly. I think in my head, his face is that of everyone who's ever given me shit about the trip. He is yelling at me in French, quite irritated. I can understand why he's so upset. My bark is really loud and an elevator is small and cramped and hot and miserable. I'm taking up more than my share of the elevator as well. He's just yelling at me. I just freeze. I didn't know what to do with that. I did not grow up in a corporal punishment kind of family. Having an adult hitting me was incredibly alien. And I am just filled with terror. I am now so far outside of the safe, comfortable, accepting world of camp. All I want to do is burst into tears. But that urge to just start crying and tell the world to fuck off, that is immediately followed by a deep feeling of shame. I know that I have a neurological condition that causes involuntary movements and sounds. And I know that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's nothing to be embarrassed about. I know that's just how my fucked up wiring is. When I feel embarrassed and upset about the Tourette, I always then feel ashamed about not being stronger and being more able to cope. So I just sort of sit there red-faced, trying to simultaneously hold back the barks which I cannot stop and the tears that I desperately want to stop, I get one of the two and that feels like a victory. Immediate thing after coming down the elevator that I needed to do was go use the bathroom. And the bathrooms were in the basement or on a lower level. We were sort of on, on the lobby and I had to go down an escalator. So I'm on the escalator and I'm going down and I'm barking because I've been desperately trying not to bark all day and I'm just failing worse and worse. And of course the whole frickin' lobby area, it's all marble, so I'm barking and it's echoing quite a lot. I'm just trying not to look at anyone. I don't want to engage. I don't want to explain the Tourette. I just want to go empty my bladder. And as I'm going down, a police officer or security guard of some sort is coming up the escalator. I hear, you, hey, you, why don't you shut up or I'm going to put you in a cage where you belong. This was, I think, the first time a figure of authority had threatened to imprison me for Tourette, although certainly not the last. And I think the only thing that kept that from being a bigger confrontation than it was is the fact that I was on the uppers and he was on the downs. So he had this very short window. So he just sort of yelled at me and shook his fist and then we sort of slid our separate ways. I was pretty shaken up by that. 
which the counsellors and the other campers could see. In a span of an hour, I've had two really unpleasant incidents happen pretty quickly. So then we're standing in the lobby, waiting for all the other campers to gather who were, you know, in the gift shop or, you know, had taken other elevators up to the observation deck. And I'm just sort of standing nervously with some counsellors and barking when some figure of authority, rent-a-cop security, whatever the Empire State Building had, starts running towards us, shouting, you shut that kid up, blah, blah, blah. At this point, one of the counsellors had had enough. This guy was fucking hot. I had a huge crush on him. He was in his early 20s, had just gotten out of the Israeli military, and at this moment he became my hero, although... Damn, it's a good thing this was 1996 and not 2006, because what he did was stepped out and just clotheslined the security guard. Didn't drop him, just pivoted, caught him in the chest with his forearm and just pooped him up against the wall. Got right in his face and said, the kid can't help it, we're waiting for other campers to gather and then we're leaving and you need to leave him alone. And at that moment, my masturbation fantasies for the next six months were fixed in my mind because that was the hottest thing I'd ever encountered. This gorgeous man standing up for me. So that sort of redeemed the moment a little bit. Also, have I mentioned that I was going to be seeing Les Mis that evening? I am sure in the back of my mind, the fact that I was going to be seeing Les Mis that evening, which had become sort of my touchstone, was already starting to seem a little like the worst plan in the history of civilization because I had been trying really hard not to tick this whole time and I'd been ticking a lot. I'm on massive doses of medication and I'm already fucking exhausted. So we did something for dinner. Then we get to the theater and I'm excited and relieved because I didn't think I was going to make it through the day. And we sit down in the nosebleed section if there can be said to be such a thing at a Broadway theatre. The moment the opening bars of the overture hit, I knew I was fucked. Because Les Mis is not a short show. I have not been making it more than 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, without a tick. This is a show that I worship. And I don't want to fuck it up. And I'm pretty sure screaming about Flying Penis Man during Les Mis would count as fucking it up for everyone else. So I'm desperately trying not to tick. I'm all but biting through my lip. And a small bark gets out. I panic. I leave my seat as if I'm going to go to the bathroom. I go down to the lobby and I'm barking. One of the counsellors comes out because they can hear me in the theatre. Ask if I'm alright, say yes, they, I, I don't want to talk about it. They go back to their seat. And I don't know what to do. At all. The thing that kept me going the whole fucking day was the idea I was going to get to see Les Mis, and now I wasn't. There was a payphone in the lobby by the bathroom. I made a click call. And my mom picked up the phone and I couldn't say anything. I just started sobbing. It wasn't about the French guy and the cop and the security guard and Les Mis. It was about the realisation that this is my life. That my life isn't 
and wasn't going to be about the world of the summer camp. It wasn't going to be about acceptance and being seen first as a person and as a guy with Tourette second. It wasn't going to be a life of people just tuning the ticks out. It was going to be this. This is what I had to look forward to. And it just... It crushed me. I had been trying to shove all that aside by focusing on the idea I was going to get to see this stupid Broadway show. And I just felt so stupid in that moment. Of course I wasn't going to get to see the show. I had spent the whole day setting myself up to fail, and on some level I knew it. My life wasn't normal, and it wasn't going to be. So that's the worst day of my life. And as worst days go, it doesn't... I mean, this is risk. People have talked about truly horrific, horrific moments in their lives. And I feel stupid and privileged saying that this was my worst, but... The reason it was the worst day of my life is that it just never ended. I've been barking for more than two-thirds of my life now. I mean, even as Tourette-related things go, there have been incidents that seem worse. I was thrown out of a restaurant on my very first real date of my life with a guy. I've been denied access to airplanes. I've been talked to as if I was actually a dog. I don't want to say it's not as bad as that day in New York, because in my mind, it it's all the same day. I've never told anyone that I still feel like that 16-year-old boy realising he's not going to see Les Mis. And in the 20 years since, I've just had to learn to be okay with that. This is Risk. This is the O'Neill Brothers group behind me now. That was Winter Tashlin we just heard, and you can find him at BarkingShaman.com. Now, you guys might remember that amazing episode of Risk 
live with body storytelling. We teamed up with body storytelling in San Francisco, I don't know, several months ago, and we're coming back in May, May 28th and 29th. We will be in San Francisco with body yet again. So we're currently seeking pitches of true sex stories. On the 28th, the theme is taboo. On the 29th, the theme is out of bounds. If you live anywhere near San Francisco or you know someone around there who might have a good story, get in contact with us. I am at Kevin at risk-show.com. We're looking for the very juiciest, the most emotional, the most surprising, true stories of sexual experiences that we can possibly find. Those are going to be two amazing shows. Also, folks, as you know, Risk and the Story Studio, we're a small business, and a lot of small businesses get stuck doing things the old way just out of habit, including vital operations like mailing and shipping that can be very time-consuming, like making trips to the post office. Instead of doing that, you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can do all of your mailing and shipping right from your desk. You don't have to go to the post office again. With Stamps.com, you print postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer, then hand it to the mail carrier. Stamps.com is convenient and easy to use, and it'll save you money. You'll get special postage discounts that you can't get at the post office. We use stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our last story today comes from the show we did in Minneapolis in December. This is Amy Soloway. She's been featured in many fringe festivals around the U.S. and Canada. She's appeared on Minnesota Public Radio and the CBC. And it's great to have her back on the podcast here. She is now Amy Soloway with a story we call Vulnerable Adult. In January of 2006, I got asked to be a guest playwright for Entropy Center for the Performing Arts, which is this really cool combination um, therapeutic day program and professional theater company for adults with multiple disabilities. What I mean by that is if you were blind, you would not qualify to be a client, but if you were blind, schizophrenic, and in a wheelchair, this would be your lucky day. So, 
Entropy usually did these big, colorful, body cabaret-type shows with lots of glitter and feathers and balloons, often starring the clients with Down syndrome because they're total hams and will do anything on stage. Um, But now they wanted to try something different, and they were creating an original musical about traumatic brain injury featuring the stories of the 30 or so clients who had traumatic brain injury. The reason that I knew this at all was that my friend Steve was one of the theater instructors there. I got a call one day from him saying, um, hi, I just volunteered you to write a musical about traumatic brain injury. (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) And he said, well, you know, I mean, we've been writing this script for ages and we've been trying over and over to make it work and we just keep throwing out the drafts. It's just not working. It just keeps turning out too dark and not funny. And I'm like, I can't imagine why. (laughs) Traumatic brain injury is a laugh riot. (laughs) And he's like, oh, come on, you know you can do this. You write these autobiographical solo shows that are unbelievably depressing, but everyone loves them. (laughs) And I'm like, I have no experience. It's like, it'll be fine, just come. So, my first day at Entropy, I get like four steps through the door, and a man flies through the air and falls down at my feet. Literally, this extremely adorable man, um, like tall and gangly, kind of geometric, um, with floppy hair and these black chunky glasses and a cane, just catapults, boop, 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 and lands right where I'm standing. This entire room of people sees, and they are unfazed. And I'm like, oh my god, are you okay? Help, staff, someone. And he's like, no, no, don't help me up. I'm good. I need to work at getting up myself. It's something I'm working on. And I'm like, okay. And he says, but could you grab my thermos? And he points to the side. And there is a stainless steel thermos that has rolled away. So I grab it and wipe it off and hand it to him and eloquently say, nice thermos. And he's like, thank you. I carry it everywhere. And then there's silence. He smiles up from the floor like things are still good here. I stand awkwardly because that is my forte and I just I have so many questions like who is this guy and what just happened and is it bad that he fell will it stop does everybody here fall is it a thing (laughs) this is just my first day So I did go through an orientation, in case you are concerned. I I signed, like, stacks of paperwork, and I authorized a background check and, you know, drug screen and body cavity search, I think. I don't know. Um, And I read the really, really thick handbook about the vulnerable adult statutes, which are the laws that protect adults who have a physical, mental, or emotional disability from abuse at the hands of caretakers. So that could be abuse in the form of like harassment, neglect, assault, um, financial coercion, solicitation for prostitution or drugs, or sexual contact. And of course, I'm like, no, oh God, this is horrible. Sign, 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 authorize, authorize. But something about all that legalese triggered my anxiety because I have failed at a lot of things in my life 
and I did not want to fail at this job. But I didn't know if I would actually be good at working with a vulnerable population. I mean, I didn't know if maybe I would end up being afraid or, or intimidated or grossed out. Because, I mean, totally, totally honestly, like, there, there, there are adults wearing diapers, and there is sometimes pink eye, and there is drooling sometimes, and sometimes you open a utility closet, and there is a man standing there with his penis in his hand. But then I just thought, whatever, that could happen in any workplace. <laughs> Also, it turns out I loved Entropy. I loved these clients. They had a grasp just beyond anything of what it means to be human. Like, I walk through the world with these anvils on my shoulders of feeling fat and ugly and rejected and ostracized and wrong and so grindingly lonely. And I didn't have to explain any of that to these people. They just accepted me unconditionally and wanted to hug me. <laughs> they, they wanted me to be me the way that they wanted permission to be fully them. And they were so funny and creative and like wonderfully bizarre. Like there was this guy who apparently had a dream of being an opera-singing hot dog vendor. <laughs> and so every time we did a theater scene or an improv, he would justify the entrance of an opera-singing hot dog vendor. <laughs> and uh, there's a woman named Pam who... This is kind of something that happens. She was sort of trapped in time in her, her high school self when she was a cheerleader. So every morning she would be doing her cheerleading routines. And like we all learned them because it's good exercise. So like they were just resilient and also kind of badass. So like falling down guy, guy on the floor, his name was Aaron and I had to interview him for the Traumatic Brain Injury Musical. So I asked if I could sit with him at lunch and have him tell me his story. And he was like, yeah, it's kind of complicated. So let me know if I'm going too fast for you. <laughs> So I watched his kind of pretzeled up hand take the cap off his thermos and he poured the black coffee and took a swig. And he told me that he had been a seventh grade French teacher and an artist. He got kids to paint outdoor murals. And about two years ago, he was riding his bike and was hit by a truck and thrown to the side of the road. And he ended up in a coma for three months. And when he came out of it, he had lost two years of memory, two years prior to the accident, completely gone. He had lost all muscle control on one side of his body, so that's why his speech was slurred and his hand was twisted up and why he had just recently graduated from using a wheelchair to a cane. And his, um, his esophageal reflex was broken or, or messed up, so it was hard for him to swallow and he choked a lot. And I was like, dude, I am making you talk while you eat. 
I am going to be responsible for your untimely death. <laughs> and he was like, oh. And he pushed his bag of grapes towards me and said, okay then, you be grape monitor. You make sure that I alternate sentence, then grape, sentence, then grape. And so that's what we did pretty much every day. I mean, sometimes it was like sentence, then Cheeto, or sentence, then Wheat Thin. And I was so fascinated by his stories. I kind of stopped eating lunch myself, which honestly was okay, because, you know, weight loss. Um, One day, Aaron had yellow post-it notes stuck all over his lunch with words on them, like provolone, baggy, recycle. And I was like, dude, what are those? And he said, well, when I taught French, I would make the kids associate a written word with a 3D object that's called didactics. So now I'm making my brain do didactics. I'm kind of a vocabulary whore. (laughs) And something about hearing Aaron say the word didactics made my heart flip over a little. And I just thought, this is not a typical entropy client, you know? I mean, this is not really the same kind of vulnerable adult. This is an attractive, smart, witty, creative man my age (laughs) who (laughs) was in a terrible accident and someday is going to recover. We started sitting together for rehearsal, too, and sometimes laughing disruptively, which was frowned upon. And um, one day, Aaron forgot his didactically labeled lunch at home, and I found myself blurting, I'll take you to the cafe next door! Really high-pitched, just like that! <laughs> and, um, and he said, uh, okay, are you allowed to do that? Do you have permission? And I said, yes, of course I do. I am staff. I totally did not have permission. <laughs> so we embarked on the long, slow lurch down the hall, around the corner on the sidewalk, and into the cafe, which involved Aaron having his cane, but then also clutching my shoulder for more support with his hand, with his fingers digging in like claws. It really, really hurt. But I kind of didn't mind. Our bodies were really close together. I thought for a minute that maybe he'd smell, because, you know, some of the clients do. That's understandable. But he just smelled like guy. The entropy staff are aware when a client is missing. That's actually part of what they get paid for. And we were, we were gone. I knew that we were gone a really long time. We were really late. And, and yet I couldn't get myself to tell Aaron that we had to hurry up. And then finally, when we were lurching out on the sidewalk again, he just stopped walking, just totally stopped. It was this cold February day with a little bit of a breeze and this perfect blue sky. He stood there and tilted his head back and closed his eyes, and he moved his hand from my shoulder to down around my waist. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) And 
And he just breathed in and said, this is so nice. <laughs> it was so nice. I, um, I felt the muscles in his arm relax and unclench. And my mind thought about bad things, wrong, th illegal, illegal things. <laughs> Other situations in which it would be nice if he closed his eyes and tilted his head back and said, this is so nice. Situations <laughs> that I would like to be participating in and I knew it was bad and wrong and illegal and finally we ended up back in the theater and Steve looks at me like, uh -huh. and uh, Lisa, the director, reprimanded us in front of everyone, said, Amy, we do not show favoritism to clients here. We don't think that's fair. Do you think that's fair? And I just said, I'm sorry. He forgot his lunch. And she glared at us like we were two teenagers she had caught making out. <laughs> so from that day on, Every single day, there was at least one ambiguous moment between me and Aaron that made me go, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, when he came over to me wearing his Carhartt jacket and said, could you zip me up? <laughs> or when he looked into my eyes and was like, your eyes are so green. They are really green green and I'm like no they're not they're colored contact lenses my real eyes are the color of sewage and, and he said you should let your eyes be real I like when you're real so basically at this point I don't even give a shit about the musical I'm supposed to write all I can think about is whether there is any possible way that I could be with this man who maybe possibly likes me without committing a felony. <laughs> so, one day, Aaron's sister can't pick him up right after rehearsal. She's going to be late. So I say, well, why don't I wait with you in the cafe until she comes? Which is not violating. It is responsible. So we sat at a table across from each other, drinking coffee, and I asked him some more questions. I asked what he used to be like and how he felt about himself now. He said that it was utterly freaky how many support staff he had just maintaining his being a, a doctor and neurologist and physical therapist and social worker and an anger management specialist. And I said, you don't seem angry to me at all. And he said, you just haven't seen it yet. And then he said, Amy, I know I am supposed to feel so lucky to be alive. Everyone at Entropy goes on and on about how they're so joyful and grateful and lucky and fuck that. I don't feel lucky. I don't know if this is any better than if I had just been killed by that truck because this here is not who I ever meant to be. I take a sip of coffee. 
so my mug will be close to my face so that Aaron can't see that I, too, don't feel lucky. So that he can't know how many times I have said those same words as I sobbed at my reflection in the mirror or punched my own body or laid in bed alone in gross pajamas at three, four, five in the afternoon, day after day, because I couldn't get myself to go out into the world anymore. This here is not who I ever meant to be. Eventually, I ask him, are you okay with me asking you all these really hard questions? And he says, yes, you're the only one who does. You help me remember things. You help me feel normal. I ride the bus home with this mantra playing in my head of, I want this. No, I love my job. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to be a criminal. But this shouldn't be a crime. We are two damaged people who are connecting with each other and helping each other feel normal. Maybe someday, possibly, we could help each other feel lucky. I want this. So a bunch of days later, we're at Entropy again. We just did some yoga, some downward-facing dogs. And <laughs> Aaron is stretching, and he's telling me about this concert he went to the night before, some Afro-funk thing. And suddenly there's the sentence, Yeah, I went with my girlfriend. <laughs> I know. I'm like, uh... And he picks up on that and says, Amy, I know it might seem like we were on a path towards dating. I mean, you have feelings for me, right? But I do have to tell you that I have a girlfriend, Celeste. I I think you're a wonderful person, though, and I really hope we can still be friends. (sighs) I turn away, not only because he just slammed this door in my face, but because he did it so kindly and compassionately. I mean, there aren't any non-brain-injured guys who have ever tried to spare my dignity like that. Are you fucking kidding me? And then I feel Aaron tapping my knee, and he says, Amy, can I please tell you what a hottie Celeste is? Oh, my God. She's 12 years younger than me, so I'm kind of robbing the cradle. But, oh, she is so pretty. And she was in the Peace Corps in Ghana, so she speaks French, and she's going to help me learn. And we fuck so much. We fuck all the time. We fuck like rabbits. You should totally meet her someday. Yeah, I say. That'd be great. So, a few days, a few days later, Aaron gets kicked out of entropy. 
I know. I don't. I, this is like the responsive section right here. Total empathy flowing back and forth. Um, I don't see it coming, but I guess the other staff does. Staff that is more objective and less blinded by love. Um, he. Uh, he has an anger outburst and throws a metal chair at one of the Down Syndrome clients while screaming, you fucking retard. And there is only one noun that is not allowed at Entropy, and that is the one. So with the appearance of Celeste and the exit of Aaron, I don't have to feel shame or guilt or any terrible conundrum hanging over my head. I'm off the hook. Yay. Except not really. What I am is left feeling utterly embarrassed about my selfish hypocrisy. Because, I mean, I get it right then. I wanted Aaron to be normal enough that my affection for him wasn't against the law, but still disabled enough that he would settle for me as his dating pool. See us as these perfectly matched, dented cans unfit for the supermarket shelf. So, of course, we should fall in perfect dented can love or at least have hot dented can sex. (laughs) But it doesn't work that way. So I throw myself back into what I was supposed to be working on all this time, writing this big, amazing, happy, sad, hilarious musical. I know, about, about traumatic brain injury with these 30 amazing actors who have been hurt, damaged, and tattered, but still had a transformation. But it's hard not to think about Aaron, because that's why I loved him. He was raw and honest enough to let me into his transformation, and I was fueled by it by that feeling of standing on a cold winter day under a perfect blue sky with someone's arm around me so I could help hold him up. Thank you. Oh uh-huh. 
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Mansions on the Moon behind me now. Don't forget, our next out-of-town dates are in San Francisco on May 28th and the 29th. The themes those nights are taboo and out-of-bounds. We're going to be joining up with body storytelling. So all the stories will be about sexual situations. If you want to pitch us, you can just write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Then on July 25th, We'll be in Reno, Nevada again. Our Reno show the last time we were there was just amazingly good. So come out and see us. And if you live anywhere near Reno, Nevada, pitch us your stories. The theme that night is Mind Fuck. And keep in mind also, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. We can record radio-style stories with you, like Winter Tashlin's on today's episode. We're especially on the lookout for people that you might not normally hear from in the mass media so often. Trans folks, war vets, incarcerated people, homeless people, addicts, people who struggle with medical conditions, sex workers, the poor, people who have battled with racism and prejudice. If you're out there or if you know someone who might want to share their story with us, please contact me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. If you're not already following us online on Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison, and our school is at thestorystudio.org, where you can find our in-person workshops, our one-on-one training over Skype, our corporate workshops, and our video lecture series. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Don't Forget Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, and we're listener-supported, so do go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to become a member or make a one-time contribution and be sure to earmark it for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I could turn back the hands of the clock. I'd make my shaking hands steady as a rock. And I'd become more than nothing to you. As a final note, if you guys use Who Let the Dogs Out as the interstitial song after this piece, I'm going to do very mean things to Kevin's bits next time I see him, and not in a way that he'll enjoy. Who let the dogs out? <laughs> 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 <laughs>